This episode is sponsored by the Natural Capital Exchange, a forest carbon marketplace connecting offset buyers to landowners for high-quality carbon credits. Build benefits to the climate and wildlife habitat in partnership with your local community at ncx.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Amazon Web Services. AWS invests in technology and innovations that support ambitious sustainability goals. Learn about AWS sustainability work at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in foggy London this week. On this week's edition, the state of green business, fixing injustice in global solar supply chains, why Shopify is paying a premium for carbon removal, and is your company getting the credit it deserves? We're just putting it out there this week on 350. January 27th, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from across the pond in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you doing in London? And what are you doing in London? Do tell. Well, I'm doing I'm doing fine. It's freezing cold. Uh, but, um, you know, not probably probably I know you don't <laughs> You know, tiny violins coming from New Jersey, where <laughs> I'm sure it's freezing cold there too. Uh, this uh, this week we had um, uh, another meeting of the Green Biz Executive Network Europe. So I had about twenty companies meeting at Unilever headquarters, uh, right on the Thames uh, in in London at Victoria Embankment, and a great great group of of companies uh, talking about. Lots and lots of things, biodiversity and and empowering employees and a lot of the things we cover um, at these meetings. Um, but um, really uh, great to hear it from the European side of the mm-hmm. Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And you uh, spent uh, the early part of the week actually launching, and congratulations to you, the, what is it, 16th annual? 16th State annual. Business Report? Yeah, well, congratulations to all of us, including you, Heather. It's a team effort, uh, and you're core part of that team, and you wrote one of the 10 trends. Um, if somehow you missed it or don't know about the state of green business, each year since 2008, we uh, we publish 10 trends that we think are going to be important and impactful <laughs> uh, to sustainability professionals over the next year or two. And uh, a fresh crop of trends was published this week, along with a number of other components of the report, including the, the state of green jobs and careers from our friends at LinkedIn and the state of biodiversity and natural capital from our friends at S&P Global Sustainable One. So, um, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So you had one of the trends. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what you wrote about? Yeah, I mean, I will briefly, but I'm, I'm also curious to hear what what if anything surprised you with the trends. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm all about water tech in, in this particular edition, um, water technologies for, and I'm talking about with both information technology and applied technologies 
within the scheme of things and within the scheme of climate techs, those sorts of solutions have been have just received a drop in the bucket, if you will. Like I think it was like five close to five hundred million in twenty twenty one, but like compared with the billions being put on into climate tech in general, it's it's really small, which is really odd because water is such a big part of life. Well, it is life, right? So um I just I've noticed a uptick in both investments, but also in new um, ways of of planning for and um, and accounting for water within corporations. So there's a lot more focus. Uh, I'm actually leading a a panel at Greenbiz um, on this topic. I'm excited about it. So I'm looking a lot at that and also ocean tech in the in the year ahead, and and not just. Um, like probably, probably two threads in the ocean tech area. One is the data that we can glean from oceans that could potentially help with things like shipping, right? But also biodiversity and how well is the ocean doing as a carbon sink? And then speaking of carbon sinks, like how do we use the ocean to capture more carbon? So that's what's on my mind. I'm curious, what, if anything, really surprised you um, in terms of the themes that we covered this year? Well, before I answer that, a couple of things. First of all, you say you're running a session at GreenBiz. You're referring to the GreenBiz 23, our uh, ah, annual yes. flagship event coming up in just a little over two weeks in uh, ah! Scottsdale, Arizona. <laughs> I know. It's coming up. It's so close. Um, ah! Yeah, I know. It is. And uh, it'll be <laughs> yeah. nice and toasty warm, which uh, for both of us, given where we each uh, are, are situated, I'm sure we'll be uh, welcome as well as it will be for many, many of our listeners in the dead of winter as for the State of Green Business report, you know, in some ways, I don't mean to undermine the report at all because I'm very proud of this one as I've been for the, for the previous 15. There's not a lot that necessarily is things that you, uh, I mean, a lot of, you'll find a lot of things that you didn't know about here, but a lot of these trends are things that have been around for a while. But the reason we're writing about them now is they're just now kicking in, they're just now getting some inflection point, maybe rounding the heel of the proverbial hockey stick. Um, so things like water tech, I mean, water tech is not new, as you were saying, but it's but it's not it's finally getting the attention that it, it deserves, or at least some of the attention it deserves. Um, how companies are innovating on the business model to accelerate circularity. John Schmeyer, our circularity analyst, uh, wrote that. Again, um, these have been around for a while, but they're starting to catch on. Uh, micro mobility and transit, how cities are adapting multiple types of transit and mobility from e-scooters and e-bikes uh, all the way up to you know, buses and, and, and other rapid transit, uh, all electrified um, uh, from Vartan Badalian, our, our transportation analyst, um, you know, Teresa Lieb on, on, on alternative protein uh, is finally hitting mainstream. It's no longer a niche thing, um, although there's a lot of shakeup in, in those markets. I think it's just it's really hearing from the analysts uh, and journalists uh, on the on the team uh, about what they're seeing and 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 you know it depends how much you know about these topics you maybe it may be all new to you or maybe yeah I kind of knew that although I learned several things along the way but it, you know they they're just really nice tight uh, 500 or so word essays um, by the people who spend all year long covering these things and. Um, it's a free download. You'll find it if you just go to greenbiz.com and we'll post the direct link to the download in the notes for this week's episode. So uh, yeah, kudos to the entire Greenbiz editorial and analyst team, the creative team, 
uh, Julia Van and, and Robert Wan and, and, and a bunch of others who have come together, as we do every year, to create this uh, document that really not, not just, not just uh, at one level helps the reader understand what's going on and some of the things they should be attention, paying attention to. But from our perspective, it's kind of showcasing our people and, and sort of the many things that we're looking at. And I think from both perspectives, I think it's, it's really worked. Yeah, I'll mention in addition to the PDF, you can find a lot of the individual pieces on the site so you can get to the PDF from any of them. And speaking of what's on greenbiz.com, let's go now to the week in review. So I'm going to start us, Joel, with a piece that um, came from a contributor with the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, Siva Wong wrote about the situation in China. Um, where we have forced labor issues and how that's affecting the solar supply chain. And basically, it's a sort of a call to action on understanding where these panels are coming from, how uh, corporations are making plans. But it, but it, but it's kind of contributing to this, this major uh, upheaval we're seeing in the solar supply chain. I was speaking with someone yesterday, actually, about renewable energy projects. And um, this corporate uh, person was was talking to me about how much more difficult it's gotten to go out and do um, requests for proposals for big solar deals and trying to figure out the economics of them and the the and frank frankly the delays that are happening in the components. But um, part of this is because of the um, the U.S. law against uh, shipments from uh, and I'm going to get the 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 region's name wrong. I'm not good with Chinese pronunciation. Um, Xinjiang Xin, region? Xinjiang. Xinjiang? Xinjiang region Xinjiang. of China? Yeah. I'm, yeah. Xinjiang, I'm sorry. And I apologize. That is, I should have prepared. And so anyone listening, yeah, bad on me. I apologize. Um, Xinjiang. Um, but the point being that um, there's this major humanitarian crisis going on in this region. And it's, yet it's like where we've got a lot of solar panels coming from. And um, the European Union is, is considering similar restrictions. So it's going to make the situation more intense. Um, it absolutely makes it even more important for us to get our act together locally and domestically in each country. Like here in the United States, there's talk of of ramping up the solar supply chains. And I have seen some, some deals um, related to that. But we can't move fast enough, right? I mean, we have so much pent up demand for these projects, and yet we're sort of facing this um, the situation where the the humanitarian situation is um, untenable. Yeah, and this region in China that uh, Heather and I both probably mangled pronunciation is is where the the Uyghur, yeah, the Uyghur ethnic Muslims. communities are being uh, really terrorized mm -hmm. uh, in some ways by the mm -hmm. Chinese government. Um, a lot of human rights violations, forced labor, um, and this is going to make our solar panels. And I don't think a lot of people realize that um, it's just it's forced labor, it's uh, environmental justice in the solar manufacturing sector. We don't really think of of those together. And one of the things that surprised me in this piece is that, you know, well, why can't we just use, use tracking and tracing transparency technologies like we do with so many other uh, components and commodities? And, and um, the author, uh, Siva Wang, writes, um, you know, that tracing programs are likely to, you know, be ineffective and superficial half measures because Chinese authorities monitor and restrict information yeah. in this region. Yeah. Uh, they limit auditors' <laughs> ability to investigate. And, and the current tracing and certification protocols are, 
uh, uh, limit or they permit downstream buyers to keep sourcing the solar PV commodities from manufacturers so long in these regions, so long as the specific shipments uh, possess no connections to the region. Uh, I don't understand. It's all that. confusing. Anyway, yeah. there, there mm. seem to be a number of, of loopholes uh, big enough to pass a solar panel through. So basically, they're saying that they you can still buy from a manufacturer that has plants there. Um, you don't, you know, provide, you know, in theory, you're you're saying that the, the the panels aren't coming from those exact plants, right? So that's that's what they're that's what he's trying to say. But the other thing that kind of boggle my mind is remind P.S. reminder that many of these factories are running on coal. <laughs> so we're using yeah. coal energy to create solar panels with just. You know, I'll say the word slave um, with what amounts to almost slave labor. So it is pretty, um, I mean, it's just something that we all need to get more cognizant about. And, um, you know, we tend to, to, to not think about these things because they're so far away, but it, it, it deserves much more of attention, our attention. And one more point on this is the is the the new the Inflation Reduction Act here in the United States is mandating that uh, solar uh, to get certain kinds of subsidies and credits that the solar panels be manufactured in the United States or at least assembled in the United States. Um, and if we start restricting that, uh, because we don't really have the capacity to replace Chinese solar panels yet. So if they're if they're avoiding certain Chinese panels and can't make them in the United States, it could be a constricting factor to the entire solar industry for the next two or three years until some of these plants can get up and running. So this is a, a really interesting and important uh, topic. And, and thank you uh, to Sifa Wong for bringing it to our attention. Well, let's do something that's a little bit more about corporate practice, um, specifically the communications piece of this. And this comes from our good friend and longtime contributor, Suzanne Shelton, over the Shelton Group in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, and, and this is about, you know, how companies uh, should they how much they get credit or should get credit, um, you know, Consumers and business customers say they want to buy from companies that are leading the charge on sustainability. Investors want them to invest. Uh, they want to invest in those kinds of companies and employees want to work for those kind of companies. But, um, you know, most people don't even know what good companies are. I mean, this is the mind blowing part. We don't even know how to think about good companies, even though we all say we want to buy from them. And uh, there's just some rather shocking and disturbing points that Suzanne makes here. And I'm sure you have some to point, uh, some of those to point out, Heather. Yes. And one of them was the, the fact that the mental model for, for sustainability in America is all about recycling. So that's what they, people look for on the labors. Can it be recycled? Is it recycled content that, you know, so it's like all about that. And yet we don't have the infrastructure. And so it's just, and she has written about that before, but that was one of the things that jumped at, leapt out at me. Um, and that, you know, the buzz on buzzwords, <laughs> which she does a survey on, um, they found that only 34% of people in America claim to understand the term net zero, and only 40% say they understand the term carbon neutral. So consumer products companies are to be, um, it, you can understand why they're emphasizing recycling because people kind of get it. Um, you know, 71% say they understand the term recyclable. 
so you understand why 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 more um, companies are not are not going to market in this way. But I don't know. It's just we definitely need to edu- educate. We need to show how we're fighting the climate change, and we need to show you know that I think there was a really good example that she made of um, the Domino's ad that she saw. Like I think it was probably on one of the the sports games, but a Domino's pizza ad that promotes the use of electron electric vehicles for deliveries. Um, and she points out that the, that's a great a great effort. Um, but like, why are you using EVs? You should talk about how they um, what they mean for the planet, why they reduce fossil fuel use, and so on. So it's it's um, yeah, it's all about the messaging. And boy, I guess we have the big Super Bowl coming up. It should be interesting to see what the ads look like there. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah. I, I want to go back to those statistics because they are really kind of shocking. I mean, first of all, that most consumers think that the number one thing that they and companies that should be doing to fight the climate crisis is recycling. That's uh, already, we're already off to a bad, bad start. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I bet that you, know, you said 34% of people claim to understand what net zero means, 40% claim the carbon neutral. Uh, they even say this, Suzanne, that these numbers are higher than they thought they'd be. I'm sure it's not this, that high that 34% of people understand net zero. I, I just can't even imagine. There are people in sustainability who don't understand what net zero means. They just, you know, and, and so. Um, do you understand what it means? <laughs> I do. I think I do. Do I understand yeah, what it means? Well, um, yeah. and, and, and this is also uh, just blows my mind, Heather. Uh, 71% say they understand the term recyclable. What's not to understand about something being recyclable? I, I mean, I, I guess uh, I'm assuming a lot more knowledge and insight and intelligence and uh, for the American people, and maybe that's a mistake. Um, but, you know, the, 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 we haven't even gotten to the part about how companies take, you know, really get credit for the, the really hard stuff they're doing. Um, how do they talk about this stuff? Um, what, uh, you know, what are the terms to use and not use? Um, and we're going to talk a lot about this at, at the comms summit, which comes up as uh, alongside our, our the aforementioned Green Biz event. And uh, there's just some really interesting insights into into comms. Um, you know that we we're, we're we're using scientific terms like net zero, which is actually a scientific term that nobody understands, um, and it and it's not the way that companies need to be communicating these things. Um, and you know the science the scientists' language is very different from the rest of us. And I'll give you one quick example. Um, uh, Scient you know generally we think of things that are negative as bad and positive as good. Well, there's something called negative emissions, which uh, is as scientists call it, which is basically when companies are taking out or removing more carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases than they're putting into the into the atmosphere. That's a good thing. Negative emissions means we're drawing down the, the, the concentration of, of greenhouse gas, um, but it's negative emissions. So that do they understand that? Uh, there's positive feedback loops, which are where things start cycling out of control. They just move forward faster and faster. Uh, they're positive. Is that a good thing? No, absolutely, they're absolutely not a good thing. So there's so much work that companies need to be doing to talk about this stuff. You finding the right language, finding the right kinds of messages. And we haven't even gotten to the part where you know the, a lot of this stuff has become political and woke and all that kind of thing. That's probably a, a conversation yeah. for another day, 
but that's all part of the mix. Or greenwash. Or greenwash. Everything can yeah. be greenwash. If it just feels yeah. like it probably isn't true or shouldn't be true, uh, it's greenwash regardless of the fact that it probably is true or there's a good chance it's true or maybe it's a little bit hyperbole, but it's based on something real. Anyway, sorry to get off on a rant on this, but it's something that's near and dear to me, and that's why uh, I played a role in putting on this uh, comms summit coming up on February thir- uh, 13th and 14th. Um, so anyway, lots to do there. You know, it's one thing to 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 do the hard work that so many of our listeners do. It's another thing to get credit for it. And the connection between these two things is how the public actually knows that companies are doing the hard work. That's about storytelling, messaging, so many other things. We've got our work cut out for us. I'm Jesse Klein, Senior Editor at GreenBiz. Shopify, the global online and offline commerce platform, is a leader in corporate sustainability. It has been reporting emissions to CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project, since 2016, and has been investing in carbon removal since 2020, a commitment that has gotten to be $33 million to 28 technology-enabled carbon removal startups. It is also the founding member of an advanced carbon removal buying commitment called Frontier, with other sustainable pioneers, including Meta, McKinsey Sustainability, Stripe, and Alphabet. Through Frontier, these companies are pledging nearly $1 billion to fund carbon removal technologies. The company has also created educational resources about and access to carbon credits for its millions of merchant customers. I sat down with Stacey Kauk, the head of sustainability at Shopify, to dive deeper into its sustainability strategy. So Shopify hasn't set a net zero target. That's kind of unique for a company in this space. Why is that? So maybe I'll start at the beginning. What we have done is back in 2018, 2019, we set about doing all the things you're supposed to do. You know, you're measuring and calculating, gathering data to decide how big your carbon footprint is. And, you know, you do that process and net zero commitments, they start with that process where you're measuring and then you plan and then you get your plan reviewed and then you start on that path of trying to reduce your emissions. And then when you get to that net zero commitment date, you're ready to start buying carbon offsets or carbon removal credits. And the issue that we have with that approach is that it's very linear. And if we followed that path, we're going to get to say, say we have a 2030 net zero commitment, we're going to get to 2030. And we're going to be, okay, great. We followed through our plan, our net zero dates here. We met our targets. Everything's excellent. Now let's go buy some high quality carbon removal for our unabatable emissions. And if we're going out in the market for the first time in 2030 to buy a carbon removal credit, there's going to be nothing to buy if those solutions and technologies don't get supported today. So what we're doing at Shopify is rather than following that linear path and making a net zero commitment, we are focused on reducing our emissions. We've done a lot of things to uh, really bring down our operational footprint. Um, But alongside that, we're also buying high quality carbon removal today. And we're paying that high early adopter premium because we're one of the first buyers 
many times for these companies who are doing first of their kind technologies and solutions. And so we're buying that carbon removal today so that these companies can prove their concepts and start to scale up to meet the demand that we expect to see down the road in 2030. So in summary, you know, we need to do everything now, deep emissions reductions alongside investments in carbon removal. I think there's also been, you know, some criticism of the net zero target as it's, you know, maybe too much of a focus on carbon offsetting and not enough on actually reducing your own emissions. But did that have a factor in it all of why you didn't set one? I mean, from a pragmatic or a theoretical approach, you know, when you when you set a goal, when you think about a company setting a target or a public statement of we're going to achieve 20 percent emissions reduction, 70 percent, whatever it is. Um, I'm not sure I can identify a company out there who's going to set a target that's out of reach. Everyone is going to set a target that they know they can hit, right? And when you when you start setting targets like that, it opens up two areas of concern. One, likely underachievement. And two, you're you're so focused on achieving that one thing that you may miss other opportunities that aren't on your approved net zero plan that really could have a massive impact in reducing climate concerns overall. Like, for example, if you're very much focused on your corporate carbon footprint and driving those emissions reductions, perhaps you're not going to have the resources or the awareness of another way to drive emissions reductions, say using your platform and helping your customers achieve their emissions reductions because you're so laser focused on meeting your own. So one of the things that undermines these kinds of targets and we need to be mindful of is thinking about things from a first principles approach, thinking about things in terms of optimizing for impact rather than those um, measured results that you've committed to. And that's one of the things that we're thinking about at Shopify and why we haven't made a net zero commitment. And, you know, reduction targets are not a bad idea. And, you know, they really have to be, emissions reductions have to be part of your corporate approach to sustainability, but it's not necessarily tied, doesn't have to necessarily be tied to a target, but what you have to do is be transparent and accountable, right? So that you're, you're not, not doing it, but you're not also underachieving, right? Yeah, I think also, you know, as a technology company, probably your emissions are a lot lower than a company that manufactures something or makes something. But you're but you kind of talked about, you know, enabling your customers. And that's probably where a lot of your emissions come from. If you look at your scope three is the emissions that coming from your merchants. And you guys actually started offering a carbon neutral shipping option to your merchants. Could you give me a quick rundown of that program just so we all understand? Definitely. And then I'd love to circle back on the scope three conversation because I find it fascinating. Um, So last year we launched Shopify's Planet app, and this is designed to help businesses achieve carbon neutral shipping for every order that's placed through their through their store. And the strategy around this is trying to make it affordable and also easy for our merchants to be able to fund technologies that actively remove carbon from the atmosphere atmosphere and so how it works is a merchant who wants to offer this feature they install it on their store and then we use the data that we already have on our platform to be able to calculate and estimate the emissions from every order that's shipped through their store 
And then we surface that information to them so they can see the emissions that are happening because of all their orders that are being shipped. And then we aggregate all of the tonnage across all the merchants using the feature so that we're able to actually go buy really high quality removals that they normally wouldn't have access to because they don't have the buying power or the contracts or the network to secure those kinds of carbon removal credits. So we kind of give the small, medium businesses superpowers through this. Yeah, circling back to that kind of scope three conversation, I think I said scope three, and technically I think if it's your merchants, it's that's not even considered in your scope. It's like scope four, which they're kind of developing that idea around. But I would love to hear like how you guys think about the the emissions from your customers. And that's exactly where I was going to go with this. You know, um, our merchants who you know choose their own shipping methods. Um, I don't know, maybe they're dropping it off at the US Postal Service, maybe they're getting a courier, but like they choose their own shipping. And so like that's beyond our scope three. And, you know, to go, like if we were dead set on our net zero target and we'd gone through this process, we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't necessarily have been open to the idea of what we should really be focusing on helping our merchants because that's way more impactful than trying to reduce uh, relatively small footprint already because we are an IT company. So by without putting those definitions and those blinders on, we're actually able to use our platform to do very impactful things for our merchants and enable them to reduce their emissions when often that's quite challenging for small and medium businesses. Yeah, it's like you're expanding your carbon neutral efforts towards your customers. And, you know, you're obviously kind of thinking of yourselves as you know, part of an ecosystem to decarbonize the entire economy. How could other businesses start thinking of themselves this way? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's a challenge right now, because, um, you know, a lot of companies aren't going to be buying carbon removal for some time because they're waiting for their net zero target dates to come in. Uh, One of the things that we're trying to do with our efforts is to share them as much as possible. So at the end of 2021, we actually put out um, a resource and we called it buying carbon removal explained. And it's, it's really is that it's an explainer of like how to go about buying carbon removal and why you should. And so we, we make the case for buying carbon removal and it can be, there's a wide range of motivations to why you'd want to buy carbon removal. One that, you know, resonates with me is like you're future proofing your business, especially if you have a net zero commitment, if you're going to wait to get involved in the carbon removal market, you know, the year or two before your net zero target, you have a lot to learn in a short amount of time. And there's going to be a lot of other companies competing for those high quality carbon removal credits at that time. And so the earlier you get in now, the more you're going to learn, the more you're going to grow with the market and the ecosystem. So getting in and playing a little bit of a part in building the carbon removal market will go a long way. And so we try to put out this resource so that it gives folks sort of a snapshot into what it looks like to buy carbon removal. And we even included, you know, how we craft our agreements and the payment structures and how we monitor performance of the companies that we buy from. And so I think it's important to start getting in there and to experiment and participate in the ecosystem, because I think it'll just get more and more crowded over time. And it's good to be in at the at the ground level. Yeah, Shopify is really uniquely placed because they are sort of this connector um, and has a lot of contacts with a lot of different 
merchants and a lot of different businesses. Can you think of other companies that you think are really well positioned to start offering, you know, a sustainability service almost to their customers? Because that's basically what you guys are doing. You're offering a, you know, kind of a sustainability service to them. I mean, I like to think very broadly about that. And I, I would argue that every business has a unique offering that they can provide to their customers and to their clients. And it's especially important when we think about things that where there are where there are alternatives available. So, you know, I get into shipping and transportation and like there's a lot happening in terms of electrification of the last mile delivery. There's a lot getting developed in terms of efficiencies and technology that can really help there. And every business is going to have a unique lever to pull. One of the things that we're able to do with our Planet app is we're leveraging data that we have on our platform because it's a commerce solution. And other businesses are going to have other things that they're able to help with in terms of insights. Yeah, so you talked a lot about that carbon removal that you're buying. And there's been a you know a lot of extensive coverage of, of Frontier and the advanced buying commitment that you have with Meta and Alphabet and McKinsey and Stripe. And I'm curious, how does Shopify and the rest of the members how do they evaluate the different carbon removal investments and decide which ones they want to put money towards? So there's quite a few criteria. I'll highlight the top ones that are uh, really important to the group, um, but it's all available at frontierclimate.com. So you can go peruse at your leisure. Um, but what's really important is um, the definition of carbon removal in and of itself. It has to be atmospheric capture one way or another. I mean, that can be through, you know, a tree or a crop. It can be a na nature-based capture or it can be an engineered capture, but it has to be from the atmosphere. And then it has to be paired up with long-term storage. And for Frontier, we're defining long-term storage is in excess of a thousand years permanence. And so those are the two, that's the big gates in terms of definitions around carbon removal. But beyond that, when we're selecting projects and companies to buy from, it's really about who's got a solution that has the potential to reach gigaton scale and to be a meaningful part of the solution to climate change. And so we focus in on what, what does it take to operate that solution? Is it highly energy intensive, because that's a bit of an issue, right? Is it going to need a lot of biomass, waste biomass? How do we know it's waste biomass? So what are the inputs into um, that solution and which ones are able to leverage existing, um, either existing environments or existing storage? So for example, an ocean-based solution is really exciting because it doesn't compete for arable land where we're gonna live and grow our food. It's out in the ocean. And if it's done safely, you can do a lot of it. So we, we really look at scale. And then we also look at the economics and that's critical because you know you can do anything if you have enough money. It's that, that will solve it eventually, right? But what we need to do is make sure that we're supporting the solutions that have the potential to be economically viable to like the average buyer of a carbon credit. 
And so we have a notional idea that in the long term, we'd like to see these solutions net out around $100 per ton in terms of cost to execute. Maybe we'll be paying more in the open market because of the supply and demand that may take place. But those are the two big questions we have around scalability and cost. And then another layer that's really important that I don't think has developed fully yet is the concept of uh, community involvement, uh, environmental justice, and uh, fairness in the transition from a fossil-based society to one that's maybe actively reversing climate change through these kinds of projects and what that means um, for communities and what it means for different geographies and what it and what does it mean for countries that are more adversely affected by the negative effects of climate change, like coastal communities, island nations? How are we going to be ensuring a just transition there? So we talk a little bit about the distribution of the projects um, and what are the um, community-based benefits that are possible for these projects. So at a high level, those are the things we think about. Um, there's no straightforward answer right now what, how, what we would pick and how we pick because everything is so new that what's really important is that we're selecting a wide ranging portfolio. We wanna try things like capturing CO2 from waste biomass or direct air capture or using carbon dioxide in products like sustainable aviation fuel or in storing it in concrete. We wanna do agricultural solutions, forestry solutions, ocean solutions because we need all these shots on goal so we can start seeing what's working and what's not going to work. Yeah, that's a lot of like really tactical things. And I think that's great. And that's what we want, being able to look at the really, you know, tactical scale economics. But what about the people behind these companies? Is that a factor into how you decide which companies to invest in is the type of people that are behind them, the founders, the investment firms, anything like that? (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. I mean, what we see with carbon removal is a lot of this is still living in the labs in academic settings and those people are brilliant and they've got these ideas and they're like this is going to work you can do this right but not necessarily have those folks you know gone out and done a cap capital raise or an equity an equity round to like bootstrap their company or whatever they're trying to do right so it's really important that we understand uh, who the founders are, what the leadership team looks like. If it's a non-technical CEO, who have they surrounded themselves with? Who's their CTO? Um, who are the co-founders? Um, it's critical that they have a certain, like one thing they have in common, these founders and these these leadership teams, is that they're able to uh, come up against a barrier and they're like, okay, that's a barrier. We've learned this. We're going to do it differently. We're going to do that now. And this just constant pivoting and changing and adapting and adjusting and refactoring how they're approaching their work. And that's something that we're seeing in the leading companies that are starting to emerge in this field is they're the ones that can move quick and focus on keeping a very high learning rate rather than following through on a plan they do they 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 do one version of their approach to a point where they've learned enough that they're like okay well we better go start building the next one so we can continue learning without getting it perfect and it, it's really amazing to watch so that's one of the things that before we make a purchase especially a larger purchase we're going to want to get to know them and understand how they approach 
uh, building and proving their technologies and how they're also surrounding themselves with the right skills. So a lot of those investments happened, I think, in like 2020. That's right. When you kind of started Frontier and and put some of those investments in place. Is that correct? So in 2020, um, Shopify announced its first carbon removal purchases. And so that we launched the fund in 2019 and we made our first purchases in 2020. And then we made an I think that was eight, eight companies out of the gate in 2020. And then we added another round. in early 2021, another purchase, no, I'm getting my years mixed up. In 2022, early 2022, we added another purchase round. And then after that, Frontier was launched, which is the partnership alongside Stripe, Alphabet, Meta, McKinsey Sustainability. And since that was launched, we added another eight companies six new that we purchased from and eight were added to frontier so it is it is a bit um nebulous to try to keep them apart but really how to think about it is frontier is a purchasing or a procurement facility where five buyers coming together running one rfp process to select the most promising solutions and then we all buy directly based on how much we want to buy and we go forward like that so all of the the funding is is coming from the five companies and we have the agreement so now shopify is bought from 28 companies and we've committed more than 33 million since our first purchases were announced in 2020 and that's actually totaling over 45,000 tons of long-term carbon removal so some of those projects have been kind of in the works for two years now. How are you evaluating the progress that they've made and, and seeing the removals actually come to fruition? It is something that's always evolving because these companies are always evolving. And because we're we're buyer and we're paying that high early adopter price, we often craft our agreements in a way that we prepay. So we're paying some of the contract value in advance before any carbon has actually been captured and stored and so because we're doing that we need to stay on top of their progress towards actually delivering the carbon removal we've already paid for and so we have developed performance criteria and indicators that we use to evaluate these companies on an annual basis and we look at whether or not they're meeting their project and research milestones on time are they achieving the carbon removal quantities that they've committed to? Are they meeting the timelines? Um, How is the development of their quantification methods and their monitoring and verification documentation going? How is their life cycle analysis performing? Did they get it right? Because, you know, everything can be refined as they continue to um, use and develop their technology. The next, you know, second generation is better than first generation. And as they move on, we want to see that improvement rate happen. And so we also gather um, cost performance information to see if they're actually coming down the cost curve as planned, or if there are things that they thought would be easy and they would be able to reduce their costs that are not materializing. And so we do this evaluation so that we can make sure that we're allocating our capital in the most impactful way possible, because what we need to be able to do is to quickly 
stop supporting the solution that we've now found out doesn't exactly work or it's not going to be economically feasible we need to stop supporting that and go support something else um so this is one way that allows us to do that well i think we can end it there and i'll definitely be checking back in with you when you guys find out which one of those removals aren't working and i'll want to know <laughs> the behind the scenes of all of that but thank you so much for joining us stacy oh thanks for having me jesse this is a great conversation And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We launched an uh, eighth one this week. So now there's eight great newsletters. And it's uh, just a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more and sign up. And we love your comments, questions, and tips. Our address 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by the Natural Capital Exchange, a forest carbon marketplace connecting offset buyers to landowners for high quality carbon credits. Build benefits to the climate and wildlife habitat in partnership with your local community at ncx.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Amazon Web Services, where a commitment to sustainability means delivering innovative solutions every day. Learn how AWS is accelerating change at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability.